predicted we would be working 15 hours a week now maybe that was a little low but if you look at books like uh Veblen's theory of the leisure class what did what was an indicator of wealth playing croquet you know sitting around you go to your cottage you don't work but now what do we have we have a world where the more you work 80 hours a week I work 60 hours a week like those it's high status so we've had this weird inversion where working more is seen as like, you know, it's like, I'm always hustling. I'm always, you know, I've got a side Yeah, hustle, there's that, know? there's the hustler culture. Right. And, you know, the more, so productivity, as far as like, as long as it's been measured, has been going up. And if you think about computers, we don't write with typewriters anymore. If you make a mistake you know, on your document, you don't have to re-hand copy it, you don't have to, you know, go get the white out, you can mm. just, a few clicks away, done. So even just like office tasks, right, extremely efficient, you can edit lots of documents really quickly, don't have to print a lot of paper, you know, so... We've, and I think Amazon's kind of a good example of what's going on right now, of it's extremely efficient and yet they're working aren't they working longer hours well with less benefits well the yeah and the boss like the, there's like work speed ups you know they try and speed up the pace of work um because you know now it's like hey let's say you could uh before a conveyor belt you know you could fill 50 boxes an hour it's like, okay, now the conveyor belt comes around and you can fill a hundred boxes an hour. But instead of working half an hour and filling 50 boxes, well, now you're going to work a full hour. You're going to do, you know, so now you're, it's like the pace at which you have to move to fill these boxes because the conveyor belt is going so quick, you know, goes up. And then the boss who owns the factory, they... Now, instead of filling 100 boxes an hour, they're filling 50. Or if in, instead of filling 50, they're filling 100. So they're able to make more money. And inequality thus increases, which is, you know, what we've been seeing. Workers' wages aren't keeping track with productivity, which is how traditionally that went. Um, there's been a pretty large divergence that has occurred over the past 40 years um, where... Workers got to uh, obtain the benefits of productivity um, through, you know, higher wages or, you know, re reduced working hours. But we don't have strong worker power. We don't have unions. Most people don't belong to a union in this country. They don't have a lot of bargaining power. And, you know, I think that things are probably getting worse for working class people. So why is it that... So speaking to, I've spoken to a number of kind of working class people who are actually antagonistic towards unions when it seemed like unions were there originally to protect working class people. Mm -hmm. But now it seems like there's just so much skepticism towards them. 
not only from the libertarians I've heard and bosses, but from just employers. They just they they have like a nasty taste in their mouth about labor unions. Well, of course, a a, a boss is going to be antagonistic towards a union, right? Right. Because the union is, you know. We learned a hundred years ago that an individual worker has no bargaining power, you know, and economists will say things like, oh, you know, like the, the, the boss has to pay a wage that the worker will accept. It's like, no, no. Like you think people make pennies an hour in, you know, Cambodia because that's what they want. No, these people are desperate. They don't own anything except their own bodies, right? Their own ability to labor and so you know if they don't want to starve it's like well you know you could work here and uh they just they just don't have you know individual workers don't have bargaining power people have to come together in groups as employees to you know counter the power that accrues to someone that owns the machines that owns the buildings that owns you know today probably the computers um that people have to work on so that they can you know get better benefits get more uh higher pay that you know as we as this pandemic has shown um you know it's the essential workers the people at the bottom some of the lowest paid who are actually keeping things afloat you know right we could do without the people at the top workers know how to you know organize themselves it's like with uh sort of libertarian ideology there's this notion of like oh central planning is so bad etc etc and it's like okay so central planning is so bad yet that's exactly how we organize the enterprise with one person basically at the top making the decisions instead of a collective communal community based sort of uh, decision-making process that comes through greater worker control of their workplaces. And so would companies like Amazon, it seems like they're trying to restrict that oh, or yeah. to temper that so that there isn't a, like a union developing within Amazon. Why hasn't there been? Is it because they can just so quickly get new employees? Um, I mean, I think it's, I mean, I don't know about other countries, but I, I know that in the United States, there's just not people, I mean, in 75 years of the Cold War really did a number on, quote unquote, communism, socialism, like any of the, you know, I was just listening to a podcast from a communist who was describing, you know, the labor, um, battles of the 1930s and then in 1936 and 1937 workers were occupying their workplaces the auto workers were um i don't remember the name of the factory but the national guard showed up uh there was workers occupying a factory president roosevelt sent the national guard and they were like oh great here comes the you know army they're gonna just massacre these people but the National Guard actually ended up turning their guns against the police and uh, protecting the workers. And President Roosevelt was like, you guys have a right to bargain, collectively bargain. You have a right to uh, occupy your factories, etc. And so there, there was just so other that 
gave other workers the courage to do so. And, you know, he was just saying, like, there's nothing inherent about factory work that makes it well paid. Like, what made those jobs well paid? What made them good middle class, you know, jobs with good benefits that were desirable for a long time until basically manufacturing in the United States was shipped to low wage countries with very little worker protections. Um, it was these sorts of actions by workers, you know, it, right. it, it, they, you know, it wasn't the bosses kind of standing up and saying, you know, like, I want to make things a little bit easier on you guys. No, not give all. you guys more vacation time. No, <laughs> I once read something about Henry Ford, uh, getting like, they were crediting Henry Ford for the, the eight hour workday. It's like, he didn't come up with that idea like <laughs> that. It was the workers. Oh yeah. I mean that, that had been the, the eight hour, the eight hour workday was conceived by, um, Robert was a Robert Owen. I think he was a Welsh factory owner or like a Welsh sort of, I mean, he, he, you know, capitalism has been brutal in terms of, you know, the very sorts of conditions that prevail in countries all over the world now were once in England, they were once in Germany, they were once in the United States where capitalism came about, right? Mm -hmm. The factory system, um, you know, where people were, you know, drawn off of the farms, um, into these, you know, cities, uh, and, it was only through like a protracted decades long, you know, labor struggle that we were able to get a decent work-life balance, you know, and not, I mean, working six days a week, working 12 hours a day, etc. But I mean, that was, that was common and it wasn't because of the graciousness of the bosses. It was because, you know, if you look at like the Jewish socialist tradition, you know, these people were coming from, oftentimes uh eastern europe you know they brought to with them to the united states like these socialist ideas they were the ones organizing like in new york and stuff and uh that was a very proud jewish socialist tradition um and of people who were yeah organizing themselves you know opposing the power of the bosses and uh you know so there's like a sort of history of anti-Semitism there as well, that like there anti-Semitism is often like linked with like, you know, they say like cultural Marxism or cultural Bolshevism, which is in fact like a term that the Nazis used to describe, uh, music that they felt was, you know, beneath German culture. Mm. Um, they called it uh, cultural Bolshevism. Of course there aren't Bolsheviks today. So they you know, that gets cloaked in other sorts of languages, but, uh, well, it's like the term Marxist today is a very negative term. And I, maybe I'm a kind of a product of that, uh, red scare propaganda, mm -hmm. but I do like when I hear Marxism or Marxist thoughts, or it is kind of unsettling. Like, I, I don't know if it's, because I've been fed with propaganda or what, but I, when I think about Marxism, it does conjure ideas of, you know, the horrors of, you know, the gulags in Russia under Stalin and, and the Soviet Union. And so, I mean, how is that? 
Because Marx was first and foremost a critic of capitalism, right? Yeah. And so I feel like capitalists just should be encouraging of criticism of, or at least if not encouraging of, they're not afraid of challenges to capitalism. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> if we're going to talk about flaws in economic education, I mean, in uh, in you know, there's very little actual engagement with or accounting for people who don't think that the market is the best way to organize all aspects of human life. And, um, you know, if you were actually studying, quote unquote, the economy, you know, there would, you would think that there would at least be just, I don't know, it's very just, I mean, I think that's unique to American economics education, because in, you know, various schools of economics around the world, in Germany and Europe, especially like, no, like Marx is a part of the curriculum but it's yeah it's i mean i think that you have to go back to the cold war and the sort of anti-soviet uh hysteria that engulfed has engulfed that engulfed this country for so long and the conflation of the soviet union with marx you know as if he is responsible for stalin and what you know, right pol pot who coincidentally was funded by the united states uh, right. and armed by the united states so it's like you know that's like trying to make jesus accountable for or responsible for the crusades you know everything that was done or has been done in jesus's name jesus is not responsible for right and i just think that it's frankly childish that you can't engage with you know criticism of capitalism in, a, in an adult academic way and um what are some of those thoughts then or some of those teachings of marx that are seen as so dangerous well i mean i mean we can't just read marx slavishly we can't be like it's not like a religion you know and marx wouldn't have wanted it that way i mean he uh, you know, famously at the end of his life when I think his son-in-law or something was describing almost like a sort of Leninist uh, interpretation of Marx, he famously said, I'm not a Marxist. You know, like he mm. he he believed uh, that, you know, you needed to use evidence, you know, very hard-nosed, a very polemic man. Um, he... I, I just don't think that it's responsible. I mean, I think that if you're going to acknowledge problems with capitalism, you have to go through Marx, who's just one of the most, the foremost critic of capitalism and deal with what he is articulating, which is not, you know, the government should, you know, it's it, people want to make these arguments about like big government, like as if that's what Marx was talking about. Like we need like food regulations mm -hmm. you know marx is not arguing that uh you know we need food inspectors or we need uh you know building codes or whatever you know that like as if any government action is like somehow socialist what he is articulating is that you know what he says um you know the like workers should seize the means of production 
that the factories, the machinery, the buildings in which they labor, you know, the mill girls in Lowell, Massachusetts said those who work in the factories should own the factories. And it's these discrepancies and power relations that come through private property, which is property, not your toothbrush, not your car, not your bed. That's not private property. That's personal property. Private property is, you know, Walmart. It's a, it's a, a means by which people generate capital, right? Um, your bed, unless you're like a a prostitute, it's not a capital generating income generating, uh, tool, but, um, you know, when you own the machines that people go to work and labor on every day and are engaged in a relation of property and themselves are subject to, you know, they are an input in the production process, which is why employers are constantly seeking to minimize and cut the wage and the benefits, right? Because every penny, every dollar that you don't have to pay someone, um, you know, for sick, for sick leave, for insurance, for a wage, that's a dollar that the enterprise gets to keep. So that, that makes sense to me in a, like when you look at it as, as a factory, but what about McDonald's or Walmart that hires many 16 year olds and 17 year olds? Do they have a share in that in mcdonald's do they have part ownership i mean i mean i or can somebody just be their own they have their own private business where they have control over what you know what goes in what goes out who they hire i mean it it's you know i don't know the answer to that frankly like i i don't think i understand i mean look i don't think like I think that Germany, which is a, by all accounts, a capitalist nation, has a good sort of metric that I think would be great to adopt here, which is that in Germany, if you have an enterprise over 50 people, right, so it's not just mom and pop shop, you know, once you get to have 50 employees, that's a pretty big organization, Um, uh, and you, you know, that organization can't function just because of one person, right? <clears throat> Once you get to have an inst- an organization or a business of over 50 people, you know, that you have like a board, a board of directors, etc., you need to put 50% of them have to be from the workers themselves and not just people who invest in the company, not just people who give the company money so that they can get a return on their investment. It actually needs to be made up of people who go to work there, spend the majority of their day there, their families depend on it, etc. And, you know, Germany is one of the, it's a leading world economy. You know, it makes sense to me too, because I don't know much of anything of Marx, but it make he, he was kind of around the time of like a Dickensian London, right? Yeah. An industrial London, Manchester, and I think of if he was around at that time, seeing the horrific things that he was seeing children in factories, you know, children as chimney sweeps, and you know, developing early um, signs of you know, cancer mm-hmm. and other horrific things, and there weren't 
how long were the work hours, like 18 hours a day or something like that? Uh, usually the, uh, like a 16 hour work day was not uncommon. And so <clears throat> somebody like Mark's looking at that and critiquing that, it's just such a different perspective. I think that I wonder if some people nowadays think that it's just capitalism of today. Right. They, and they're looking at it like, <clears throat> well, he, he doesn't have to work at McDonald's. He can just quit. Right. Like I heard, uh, of an employer of mine that I got in a discussion with say something like, you know, maybe unions were necessary in the past, but we don't need them today, right? As if everything is just hunky-dory uh, property, you know, people aren't exploited today, people aren't, you know, I mean, it, it's just such an absurd notion that, um, you know, people don't need to check the power of employers. And that's what I think like libertarianism's blind spot is, is yeah, like sure. They'll make a critique of state power, but corporate power is not, you know, it's not within their purview. It's just, it, it there. I mean, I, I've said this before. It's the billionaire defense league. That's what I see. You know, these people go to bat always for, you know, the most powerful, the most wealthy elements of society um, because that's frankly who bankrolls like a lot of these organizations, um, not coincidentally, you know, right. uh, it's because it's amenable to people who hold huge amounts of wealth and this sort of pernicious myth that these, you know, people just are, you know, it's this American, it's this American notion, which is quite destructive that, uh, people rise and fall based on purely their own merits, and these people got to the top of where they are because they worked a hundred hours a day, and you know, right. like it's just it's absurd. When I hear some, sometimes I hear from like American libertarians who will say something like, "Well, if you don't like your job, you can just you quit. Just leave, right? You can just leave." As if somebody, let's say they're in even like a middle management position or whatever, where at any moment they could, somebody above them in the hierarchy could fire them or find a reason for them to be fired. And it's not so easy, even if that weren't the case, it's not so easy for them to just go, okay, you know, I'm just going to go find another job. I mean, they have mortgages to pay, they have family, they have car payments, they have all these things that keep somebody locked into a job that they may not like. And so it's not so easy as to go next door and, and just get another job. Right. And these people even though they make that argument, they're some of the greatest uh, opponents of like a national healthcare system, which, you know, you'd think, in, you know, would allow someone the freedom to just change their job. But, you know, in, in this country, uh, your healthcare is tied to your job. And so people don't have that freedom. You know, if you have a sick kid, for instance, uh, that requires certain medications, you know, it's like, well, how do I know that I'm going to be able to get a healthcare plan that, you know, covers it. I wonder what got you into economics? What started your brain kind of moving towards economics as a field of study? Um, I mean, I think I've always just been interested in, uh, human activity, human life. <clears throat> and, um, the social sciences, I think, have always just attracted me. I tried uh, 
uh, going into medicine. I was taking biology courses. I was taking chemistry. And it was fine, but it was just something that I realized, you know, this doesn't, like, spark me. Uh, doesn't make me, like, want to, like, get up and, like... This is what I read about in my spare time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it seems like you keep coming back to philosophy and economics. Yeah. And uh, so, I don't know. I mean... Which I think I learned from you, they were connected at one point, right? So they weren't separated. Like, economics wasn't in the business department. It was a part of philosophy. It was part of political philosophy. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Adam Smith wrote books of moral philosophy. He wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Um, and, you know, Adam Smith is considered the modern-day father of economics, of course, you know, Aristotle, and obviously non-Western thinkers were thinking about economies, you know, even ancient historians and stuff like that. Economic activity was a subject of discourse for a long time, but in terms of a sort of modern-day understanding of capitalism, you know, Adam Smith is sort of the the father of that, and it was called political economy. They were, you know, political economists. Um, they weren't this, like, separation between political science, economics, and philosophy was not so hard and fast. And uh, m economics was a, considered a branch of moral philosophy, like biology or chemistry were considered part of the, you know, natural philosophy Right, which which basically turned into science, but this yeah arbitrary sort of uh, you know academic division of these two it wasn't so clear cut. And I I haven't read Wealth of Nations Adam Smith, but very few economists but it, do. <laughs> but it I flipped through it, and it's not like there's just math equations and right. you know complex arithmetic. It seems to be like a philosophical treatise. More yeah, than... yeah. Uh, that that I mean, economics became very highly mathematized in the, you know, mid to late nineteenth uh, century, um, and that's one thing that I don't think economics as a field has much of in terms of early, you know, education for you know, people who are studying economics is there's like, again, there's this very little economic history, you know, people just, they're born in the world and they think like, Oh, this is just, you know, capitalism is, Oh, we've always had a, a weekend. And, uh, you know, it's like, no, like people, <laughs> right. people had to get their heads cracked in by the police, uh, stand up. They had to put themselves, their families in danger. You know, they didn't have, unemployment insurance if uh they were trying to organize a labor union and uh, organize their co-workers for better you know for a decent work-life balance for example um not work six days a week or you know even more um not be put in danger not you know if they got their hand caught in a machine not just to be thrown outside of the gates and just well see ya you know people that that was a long long struggle not only in this country but every country where capitalist modes of organizing production have taken place and are you know this is still going on in in bangladesh um labor activists are routinely killed you know uh by private security forces that bosses hire you know in this country it happened there's the pinkertons who were like a private detective agency and other 
you know... What did they do? Uh, the Pinkertons were just an anti, anti-labor, basically, like, private security force that were sort of infamous for their brutality, the types of skirmishes they were involved in in the United States. <clears throat> but there are modern-day Pinkertons all over the world who, you know, seek to defend the power of bosses and owners. And so were the Pinkertons, they were up like a branch of the government? No, they weren't. They were basically like hired thugs, like a hired security firm. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, they would... Uh, I mean, a famous example is the largest labor skirmish in the United States. It's called the Battle of Blair Mountain, where something like 20,000 West Virginia miners um, went on strike... And uh, the Pinkerton Detective Agency was involved in, you know, gunfights and firefights with the workers uh, there. Hired by the bosses? Yeah, hired by the mine owners. And, yeah, I mean, like, like it's this aspect of economics in terms of the way in which social relations are you know and pa- like the power and social relations involved in production that is what i don't think a lot of people understand that marx was addressing you know i mean socialism didn't marx didn't invent socialism uh the the you know the socialists had existed for a long time, because a lot of people could see the problems, right? It's not just Marx was the first pre- person to, you know, William Blake, right? If you read The Chimney Sweep, a uh, very poignant sort of, uh, you know, portrait of the these, like, ter- these terrible conditions that these people work in, and then it's like, ultimately, you know, oh, they go to heaven, you know, and Marx, his greatest uh, contribution, so against the sort of, he, you know, these earlier, you know, sort of 17th century, 1700s, 18, early 1800s um, thinkers, you know, people were organizing, you know, the Mormons were organizing uh, sort of utopian communities, right, where, um, you know, they were people like capitalist social and property relations were, um, you know, under criticism. Marx against these types of you know, socialists called his socialism scientific socialism and his greatest contribution was really to sort of explain the mechanisms and the workings of a capitalist economic system and the you know hidden ways in which you know in this like sort of realm of economic equality or like these sorts of uh to just look underneath the hood of the sort of phenomena that people just took for granted, you know, and to ex- and link it to the length of the working day, which is a huge part of the book Capital, looking at the length of the working day um, in terms of how how capitalism works and the division of the working day um, and also the the productive capabilities at a given 
point in history and how much of that of the surplus that people generate through their labor you know goes to the workers versus who versus the owners right right um and that's one sort of the you know aspects of sort of this this very american notion of like individuality like well you know the the boss should get the most amount of money because he takes the most amount of risk and it's like oh because the family that works for this guy doesn't have any risk if the business goes under right they have no stake right in the situation they have no you know they don't have a mortgage to pay right they don't have families to you know family to feed a mouth to feed it in in this country they don't have health insurance medications health conditions that need addressing no it's just just that guy i mean it's just it's so almost transparently favor you know tilted towards and favored towards the owning class which is why uh economics has been so you know that's why i think it is in the state that is that it is in it's because it became subsumed into the business school into the uh finance departments etc because it just became they became lapdogs for bankers and social you know and uh you know bankers and financiers and business people right to understand the economy like they there's a really funny uh anecdote in a lecture that i listened to by the new school for social research economist anwar sheikh who said something like he was talking to someone and he then and the man just sort of said like oh he's like yeah, i read marx so that i could learn how to exploit my workers more efficiently <laughs> like you know instead of like he was like oh so that's how it's done you know <laughs> so did you take many like survey courses or historical economic courses no, my, my, or my, were they mostly no my history of economic thought course was basically an afterthought it was sort of it was in like a very terrible time of the day it wasn't like a main course it wasn't held in like an auditorium it was an elective economic, you know. Oh, so you didn't even have to take it. You didn't have to take it. It's not a requirement. And wow, you know, that's one of the more, more pernicious aspects of economics is that it presents itself as this like objective, scientific, mathematical. You know, it's. I mean, they a lot of physicists like get involved with it. Like they think, you know, it's this sort of physicists. Yeah, like I, you know, there's like this a lot of physicists address and think about economic questions um why i mean just because of the mathematization of course physics is a very mathematized field but human beings are not you know bowling balls being dropped off of buildings uh, yeah to like you know and air resistance you know it's it's much you know it's not this there's ideology involved there is assumptions involved about human nature and you know you know economics at least orthodox marginalist uh neoclassical economics assumes like right from day one people are self-interested people are rational and they make the best decisions you know yeah give, that's just not true well, yeah i mean like I it's mean, it, i make so many decisions that aren't rational right i mean it's 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 just so like people want to criticize marx for his like criticisms you know they're like oh humans they can't it's like well humans have cooperated and do cooperate like as if like just because they're self-interested like 
that means they can't care about anyone else but themselves, right? Or even like, well, it's also in my self-interest to have, uh, you know, like the the inter- the interpretation, like even if you assume, okay, humans are self-interested, the interpretation and the conclusions that people draw from that are ideological. Like, oh, that means, like, I could just as easily turn the tenets of of neoclassical and marginalist economics to favor... Like, oh, well, then that means, you know, workers should be able to, um, like, what's good for me, like, in terms of, oh, if I have greater autonomy in my workplace, uh, like, that would be good for me objectively, right? To be able to have a vote in my enterprise, to be able to make a decision uh, about the types of conditions, the products I make, the wages I earn, etc., who manages me, etc., that's in my self-interest, right? So workers should be able to have uh, greater bargaining power and greater uh, representation in their, and democratic control of their workplace or, you know, it's just, it's, it does seem so overly simplified, doesn't it? Because everyone does everything in their own self-interest. I mean, Mm -hmm. yes, but then also no. And then some of the things they do in self-interest are also for the interest of other people around them. Right. And some things are purely, if that is possible, purely, if you can be purely self-interested, I think you can possibly be purely interested in helping another person. I mean, it's just complicated, isn't right. it? And people can, and you can have multiple reasons people of why can, you want yeah. to do something. And people can work in their own self-interest in cooperative ways. Right. Yeah, that's true. I, I remember hearing about this, uh, the prisoner dilemma. You, have you heard yeah. that? Yeah. Where if all prisoners just acted how does it go? It's something of like, if all prisoners just acted together or if, yeah, then then it would be the, it would be better for everyone involved. Right. But it's like, if one person acts out, then the whole, you know, then that person gains and everyone else loses. Right. Um, you know, and it's like, okay, people are self-interested, but for some reason, for some reason, an unchecked market economy will lead to the most efficient and desirable outcomes for everyone involved. No one is going to use their self-interest to exploit workers. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's completely, I think that economics doesn't have enough of a, and I don't think it's accidental. Economic history is just not taught and emphasized because it's not useful to capital. It's not useful to employers. Well, it it isn't accidental, is it? Because, your school, wasn't it funded by... Cokes. I mean, if it was funded by Koch brothers, which are, what, billionaires? Yeah, they're, they're in like... In New York? Number, they're like number... They're in the top 10 wealthiest people in the world. And so if they fund it, I mean, I would imagine surely they're going to fund programs that are consistent with their beliefs, right? Of course, yeah. And it's like, who... Well, then, who gets the most speech? Who gets to fund... <laughs> Uh, programs and chairs, you know, that they were funding professorships, they were funding all sorts of programs for students to sort of, there's sort of a, there's sort of a pipeline that exists where they are sort of, they read all of these thinkers that are amenable to, um, you know, I would call them neoliberals. You know, the father of neoliberalism is Friedrich Hayek. 
Mises, von Mises, these uh, Austrian thinkers, um, who I don't think, you know, I think that they're, like, one should listen to them and read them, but, like, they're sort of a slavish, you know, an Ayn Rand, you know, these sorts of um, thinkers who whose ideology is very favorable, like, very favorable to the stories that billionaires want to tell themselves about themselves. Right. Justifying how they're operating. Right. So that's their, it's through their own wealth, through their own power, their own ingenuity, their own genius, uh, their own, you know, pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps, etc. That, you know, the economy is the, is a meritocracy and we're at the top. And so like, we want you to be the top too. Right, it's like it's almost like an Amway yeah. idea. The Amway guys, I get approached by it. I was approached. Um, so I told you the time I was approached when I was looking at books in the in the DI or whatever. Right. But then I was also approached. I was just sitting down and I was studying, and this kid comes up to me, and he just sits next to me. And there, I mean, there are multiple chairs that are that are free, but he chooses to sit right next to me. And he's not reading or looking at his phone or anything, and I I'm trying to avoid eye contact, and he just he just starts kind of you know like tapping his fingers, <laughs> like like notice me, and so I look up and I go, hey how you doing, and he goes, oh, hey so uh, so you're interested in Sherlock Holmes huh? <laughs> And I was because I had a Sherlock Holmes book. I wasn't even reading it. It was just right there. And he just wanted to start a conversation with me. And then he slowly inched his way into talking about, you know, this. Do you want to be your own boss? <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, I think everybody would like to be their own boss and not have to answer to anybody. Right. And he's like, well, you know what? I'm a part of this, uh, this great movement that... Uh, you know, you, you can you can have set your own schedule. You can do all these things, and it sounded, you know, obviously I knew this guy was just, just completely batshit crazy. <laughs> and but he he still he just kept going and kept going and kept going. And I told him, hey man, I'm really not interested. Is this an Amway thing? And you know, I called him out, mm -hmm. and then he left. And I heard him down in the. <laughs> he went down the stairs and then I heard him Do you want to be your own boss? I heard him approach another guy and say the exact same thing. It was like a Simpsons character. <laughs> yeah, like I love how his like openings you know, it's like to to like appeal to like the sense of alienation and powerlessness that people feel in their everyday lives with respect to the place where they spend the largest amount of their waking hours, which is at their workplace, mm. you know, <laughs> and appealing to the sort of dissatisfaction. I mean, as like Mormon missionaries, I would do the same thing. Like, have you ever, like, I mean, there's this sort of like, do you ever wonder where you came from, where you're going? You got to have that opening line. And you know what? I, it was months later, I saw that same guy and he was working at McDonald's. Oh. I, saw, I saw him working at McDonald's and I think he was a little embarrassed because he per he had this persona of success and you know like I'm gonna I'm just gonna own my own yacht he mentioned that he's like I'm gonna have my own yacht the the main owners of Amway are like these insanely wealthy people 
but then everyone underneath them is just kind of you know slavishly i guess just annoying people and going up to people and recruiting people into their program right i don't know and you you mentioned that that is something that's more an american thing where what what is groups like amway and uh multi-level marketing and i mean i don't know what the state of it is i know that like in mexico there's like mlms when i was there i'd noticed that there were they're huge in utah yeah yeah but i mean i think they probably exist everywhere i mean in terms of their the i mean they're obviously like probably unique products or maybe i mean there there probably is even an international number of international ones i think amway's international yeah you're right that's true but yeah it's um it's like you don't think you think the people at the top of those things like don't know what they're doing yeah <laughs> they're just laughing just, i mean they're not stupid yeah they're of course i mean it's kind of like what that guy said to anwar shake like i learned like i read marks to help like it helped me it helped me to understand like how to exploit my workers more brutally more objectively you know right and it's like these people are like of course we know how the economy works like we're not gonna we're like yeah i'm not gonna pay someone a hundred dollars an hour because if i could the the least i can pay them the less i can pay them the more money i get to keep yeah right, right. so the interests of the worker and the interest of the owner are not harmonious they're not aligned there is a class antagonism that exists between that is something that's avoided, isn't it? Class. Yeah, there's no. So class isn't really talked about much. In but so class, isn't... class is certainly something that needs to be addressed. You feel? Yeah, it's a. I, I mean, once I mean, it was really interesting. I mean, I it's really been almost after the Donald Trump's election that, like, of course, you know, like the, cl- like once you begin to look at the world through the lens of class, which is you know. Uh, relations of uh production relations of power relations of income yeah there there's it's not it's not the same you know there's they're not there there is a zero sum aspect to and that's what economics doesn't address there's no class analysis it's like this equilibrium of you know bargaining that you know that comes through that that the the ideal outcome is reached and and a market clearing price is reached and it's just it's so idealized you know and they want to criticize marx for like oh it's too idealized you know like people aren't of course like like can't work together to uh in any sort of collective undertaking everyone will become selfish and it's like well <laughs> uh I just lost my train of thought. But you know what? Cl- class is such a obvious and clear thing once you start to think about it, because even if you're not looking at it at, at economics, which we'll quickly lean into, but if you were just to look at it through accents, I mean, America is kind of odd in that way because you and I have a pretty general non-regional accent where mm. it's, it's like somebody in New York could speak with our accent somebody from florida can speak with our accent but if you go somewhere like in britain and you know 
immediately a person's class for the most part if you hear them with like a a cockney accent or you hear them with like a mancunian accent or or their or glaswegian accent they're going to be associated with working class whereas if they have a higher rp accent it is a social advancement you know it really will push them forward i mean it wasn't only it was only a few decades ago that the bbc allowed for regional accents mm-hmm. you know and so i mean class is so evident in so many ways right i mean yeah the, i mean my 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 point that i lost my train of thought on was like as if that the the account of how the economy works and the sort of rarefied platonic mathematical perfection that exists isn't you know it's as if that's not idealized right like Anwar Sheikh makes this really good point where he's he's like we I we're gonna start from empirical evidence we're not gonna start from assumptions that we're just making mm. you know and one of the things that he talks about in his uh, lecture series on his book which like took him decades to write and he's an economist right? he's an economist yeah it's called uh, something like capitalism conflict and class or something like that. Oh, capitalism, competition, class, and conflict, or something like that. Anyways, the very first graph that he shows is he's like, anyone who's a critic of capitalism, anyone who's going to uh, make any sort of account of capitalist modes of production needs to account for this. And he shows this pretty striking graph from banks, bank data, uh, showing, like, annual growth from like the mid 1800s like he he's i think it's from like i don't know if it's the world bank but he's like if anyone understands or has a, a stake in understanding the economy it's going to be bankers right understanding growth mm. and things like that so he uses bank data itself and he's like look at this and you just see you know it's it's going up right right and he's like anyone who's going to you have to account for and deal with and acknowledge this which is obviously growth occurring and the dynamics of capitalism leading to economic growth in in a measurable objective way and i that's what i really appreciated about i mean i think that's a a great place to start in terms of like we're going to just look at we're going to look at empirical data Mm -hmm. and we're not going to start our analysis from so he so he looks at banks he looks at he uses bank derived bank published data about oh, okay. economic growth and and about if we want to understand how the economy actually i just think he i mean whether he's correct or not i'm not, i'm not, i think he probably is obviously i mean i think he is more right than wrong but i mean even if someone was going to disagree with his entire project um like why don't we like why doesn't economics why don't we start with what is measurable and what is objective right and, that seems and, like like if we're going to make a this pretty a, common sense if we're going to make this a scientific endeavor mm-hmm. you know a uh, uh you know if we're going to make this a scientific enterprise well then let's actually be empirical in our uh let's start from the actual world as it is actual empirical data historical data and not just i mean if you 
I think if someone hasn't taken an economics course, they're not going to understand really what I'm saying in terms of the like the the assumptions that economics makes from the beginning. But I mean, if you just take a what are, what are some like basic ones that you'd be introduced to in like a basic? Class? I mean, if you yeah, if you just take econ 101, it's um, humans are self interested. Humans are rational decision makers, meaning that they they're like no, we don't mean that they don't make they make perfect decisions, but it's like they, they make decisions that they think are going to be like in their best interest. Right. It's just, and then they start with like supply and demand and the way that supply and demand equal out. And it, it, I mean, it's called general equilibrium theory, which is like, they talk about market clearing prices and the efficient price of something. And you know, it, 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 it's just based upon, I mean, everything's a mathematized model that they, that starts with basically these axioms, these assumptions, like if we assume this and if we assume that, and it's like, well, why don't we actually just say like, you know, let's, let's actually just look at actual data from the beginning, from the outset and not just like theorize. Cause I, my uh, bachelor's was in economic theory but it wasn't, you know, we weren't criticize, we weren't criticizing or taking account of how we arrived at the types of ideas that we had. Mm. It was just basically like, this is what, this is what the theory is. And we're going to just like, you know, you do all these mathematical proofs, you have to prove this and, uh, step by step. And it's like, I mean, it's kind of like, apologetics in Mormonism or like the defense of it's like once you start from the assumption that God spoke to Joseph Smith and that the Bible and the Book of Mormon are like are actually reflective of some like empirical truths like well there's all sorts of like proof texting and you know, people using the Bible, like, well, if this, you know, if this text is right and this text is right, then like, you can look how they, it's like the assumptions, the conclusions prove the assumptions, the assumptions prove the conclusions. It's mm. like, like, why is the Bible true? Well, the Bible true is true because, uh, God said it's true and God said it's true because the Bible said it's true. It's just, you know, right. this it's sort circular. of, yeah, the circular argument and I don't know. I'm not like, I'm not even saying someone needs to be a Marxist, but I just wish that economics education would be a little bit more circumspect about their own, the way in which their own decisions are biased in terms of the types of conclusions you can come to based upon a certain set of assumptions about how the world works. And I wish they would have more historical perspective analysis uh i think it should be almost entirely historical because uh it would teach kids actually how things came to be where they are and not just uh you know as long as i've been alive we've had a 40-hour work week and and uh you know and even that's going away um and a weekend and uh no let's 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 at least respect and acknowledge 
and uh, pay homage to the sacrifices of everyday normal people who had to struggle. They fought their entire lives, even and even when they died, they still didn't, you know, achieve it until it was you know decades later. But they still like, you know, fought and struggled. And I just think that there needs to be a little bit more class consciousness. And you mentioned too that this pandemic is showing that, you know, work can be very different. That people can still keep their businesses, and everything will, will still work and operate and people can do it remotely well i mean i mean obviously people are hurting in this uh people are losing their businesses but i what i meant was that people like the nature of work i is 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 you don't need to be in your office your physical office i think in a way that we've never seen the nature and relationship of people to their work is going to change like oh i was able to work from across the country and every be day just as productive yeah and hopefully the, maybe even more so hopefully there's you know and obviously not all jobs uh, have that benefit um and uh, you know as we're seeing it's it's the grocery store clerks it's the clerks at the checkout stand it's the you know uh the mail carriers, the garbage men, these are the people who actually keep our society functioning. Could you imagine, you know, if the grocery store workers uh, stopped stopped working, the people who pick the fruits and vegetables, yeah. uh, you know, the food system, etc. These are often some of the most, the least paid, well paid, the least protected, the least, you know, benefited. So would that be kind of an example of the prisoner dilemma where, say if every, um, you know, migrant worker suddenly just went on strike i mean Which that they, would... they did the cesar chavez in the the grape uh strikes the agricultural strikes in in california in the 70s what benefits did they get from doing that did they i mean did they get what they were asking for did they get more pay did they get yeah they ended up getting i mean i'm not super familiar with uh I just know that they were that there were there were agriculture strikes in California um, from the you know the migrant California workers um, looking for better working conditions, better pay, etc. And uh, anyways, I, I, I was just an aside. I was trying to listen to your point. Oh well, I not too long ago I was watching The Fog of War. Have you seen that? Documentary. Is that a documentary? Yeah I, yeah, I don't think I've seen it, but I've seen it. It's the, so I can, good. I can envision the cover. Yeah, with Robert uh, McNamara. McNamara, yeah. And they, he was Secretary of Defense, wasn't he, under uh, uh, the, during the Vietnam War, and or Secretary of State? Yeah, that sounds right. He was he was an, he was a government official, administration and official. one of the top dogs. Yeah. And architects of uh, Vietnam, and so the whole documentary is, it's based on him, and he's narrating much of it and he's teaching his lessons of what he learned from the war mm -hmm. and he's very he's very retrospective and he's actually very human i guess beforehand when he was younger he was seen as kind of like a robot so he saw everything in numbers but my question is so he became the president of the world bank and i'm not even sure what the world bank is and is that involved in like uh, what your economist, that economist you mentioned, does yeah, he, he? Did he look at the World Bank? Did he look at? Did does the World Bank release information 
Yeah, about I don't, international. I mean, I don't think that the World Bank existed. I think the world the World Bank only came about like in the post war period. So about the data that he was looking at was from like. I think eight, the mid eighteen hundreds, eighteen fifties. I think you know some oh, of these okay. some of these banks that have been around for, I don't know, century or more. Uh, like probably like J P Morgan's bank, things like that. I can't remember. So I mean, it's what been does the World years. Bank do? Well, that's like a whole like wormhole itself. But I mean, putatively, the World Bank is sort of a global financial organization who's who uh sort of i mean i don't i don't think i can really articulate like a succinct like definition of them and what they're but i mean they're they're sort of a fixture of the world economic system uh they often give loans and like stuff to countries and they will dictate the terms of the uh money that's given out and you know so they're immensely powerful though oh yeah probably but you know they're called the world bank but you know often criticisms of them is one of the main criticisms is it's not the world bank it's the u.s bank and it's a tool of the united states government to impose um conditions that are favorable to its own multinational corporations who are using the government of the united states to open new markets for them to you know, erode worker protections. The International Monetary Fund is also like a, a subject of this sort of criticism that, you know, the types of, you know, it's like a, a government will take out loans, for example, um, and then uh, the, the, the country for, you know, isn't able to pay back those loans. And so then they demand of the people, you know, various public, um, services are sold off, you know, to pay back these loans, right. That there's, you know, at any cost, they will get their money back and they will impose, you know, oh, we're going to raise the retirement age, you know, that, you know, this was just trying to get done in France. They were trying to raise the retirement age. And if you know anything about France and their worker struggle, you know, that's like something that they do not take lightly. Like they, the social safety net that they have achieved for themselves through literally centuries of struggle is something that they're very proud of. And they will shut the country down. They will take to the streets. Like they will fight back uh, if they perceive a threat to their standard of living, you mm-hmm. know, it's like, you know, they want to, there's always the, the, the government of these countries, Macron, the United States, they want to impose austerity, you know, savings, you know, spend thrift for poor people, everyday people, but it's never, it never applies to war. Right. There's always enough money for war. There's always enough money for carnival cruise lines. Was it three, Airbnb? Three, something like three trillion dollars in Afghanistan. Yeah, I think that combined in Iraq and Afghanistan, I think something on the order of like six trillion dollars has been spent. I mean, that's that's basically what we've just done for these bailouts of Airbnb shareholders, Carnival Cruise Line, Boeing, etc. You know, uh, wow, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, like these. You know, they always want to wag their finger at poor people. 
oh, you you don't have enough savings. You know, you people live paycheck to paycheck in their in this country, and it's their fault. Yet, <laughs> do these guys have a year savings, emergency <laughs> savings? Right. You know, or or the or the bailouts of the uh, two thousand eight. Yeah. When those guys who just conned everybody mm-hmm. and then they get what? Don't they get paid? Yeah, they get. I mean, I think they're golden parachutes. I've heard it's called. Yeah, I read a I read a an article that was basically saying that. I mean, it was in Vice, but it was showing, yeah, all of the very same actors, agents that were responsible for the collapse and meltdown of the world uh, financial system because of the housing crisis have come out better. You know, they they're they're more wealthy now. Than that amazes me. It, it makes me think. It makes me wonder why a Joker-like situation hasn't happened. <laughs> Why, like, people at, like, at the end yeah. of Joker, when people are just going crazy and riot- and rioting and rising up, I'm just surprised there isn't I mean, more I think, of that. I mean, I, th- I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, we saw, we're seeing bread lines in the United States. We've, you know, just in the last month, we've seen mile-long lines of people, people who never thought they would, are standing in line for food. I think that if things continue as they are sooner rather than later, we'll see, you know, maybe not people overturning cars and burning them though. I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't think that would be completely out of the, (laughs) I think that it's like people aren't sitting around reading criticisms of the types of social conditions that they face a lot of, you know, (laughs) They're, they're not well, right. I mean, they're, they're working it. super hard, so they come home and they probably just want to watch football, and that make and and I understand that. Right, and I think that it's you know they're not going to flip open DOS copy doll. Right, <laughs> <laughs> and that's you know a perennial problem. I, Marx was even concerned at the time that he was writing DOS copy doll, like you know, a lot of this is very difficult. It's obscure. It's you know philosophical. It starts with an, an analysis of the commodity. Um, and, uh, you know, exchange value, use value, etc. It's very sort of abstract, but, you know, he's like, I, how do you get this into the hands of everyday working people that are going to benefit from an analysis of the types of social conditions under which they live their lives, you know, and, and, and why do they work the number of hours they do, right? That's not an accident. Um, and I think it's probably a failure of the left to, in these, in this day and age, and obviously, uh, the success of propaganda and, uh, social conditioning and the means of communication that people are not, you know, they're not, they're, they're not aware of the, I don't think they're, they're not aware of how the government operates. They're not aware how the U S military operates. They're not aware of how banks operate, even economists, I don't think are there. We, they don't analyze uh, American foreign policy and relate it to how successful economically the United States is. Right. It's not, right. I mean, that, that, that could be, that could be courses and courses. Yeah. But it's, I mean, they're not like, you know, they don't just even make it as a caveat. Like, Hey, you know, later on, you're going to have to really go into OPEC and, uh, the use of, uh, oil as the and the dollar as the world reserve currency and that OPEC will only accept uh, our do- you know uh, 
oil is only bought and sold in American dollars, which is, uh, you know, totally different from any sort of like abstract analysis of currency and money is, you know, as if it's just cigarettes in some prisoner camp, which is like a, an example they'll use about like money can be anything money can, be, you know, <laughs> really cigarette, you know, so in, they'll in, use wor- that? in world war two, uh, this is econ 101, like in world war two, uh, <laughs> Who's this? This is my This is my textbook's voice. That's the voice in of the World textbook. In World War II, uh, prisoners of war used cigarettes as a form of currency and traded goods. Like it's like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and because of that, we're like now we understand how uh, the international Bretton Woods, uh, post Bretton Woods financial system operates <laughs> like it's just wow it's yeah. stupid you know and it's you know i i think that there needs there needs to be more awareness of ideology um i don't know i my my basically like closing like thought i would say is that like something that slavoj zizek said which you know he's like uh, he says soviet the soviet war model the Soviet Union uh, failed, and we do not want to go back to some sort of Soviet-style uh, notion of what socialism is. But to think or to dismiss the problems that we're facing in ecology, in the threats of of uh, you know biogenetics, the threats of uh, you know, new forms of apartheid, oppression, you know, it's it's not because of a lack of a universal healthcare system that we haven't slipped into tyranny. Like, we don't have a national healthcare system and we're slipping into tyranny, you know. Right. Like, capitalism as a mode of production, as a government, you know, can be just as oppressive, at, you know. And I think that we're moving increasingly towards a sort of China-like scenario situation where, yeah, uh, resistance to serious tyranny will become near impossible because every communication, every interaction, every movement is going to be tracked, monitored, you know, under, under scrutiny. Um, you know, it's not because we didn't have a national healthcare system that we staved off, you know, the NSA's bulk surveillance program. Like we don't have a national healthcare system and we also get all of our communications, uh, vacuumed up in a way that would make the, you know, uh, Stasi in uh, Germany or, uh, the, the KGB blush, the amount of information that they're able to obtain on people, you know, like the, even at the height of that, they didn't have the types of right. communication aims. It's like, so, you know, we ha- we are facing a lot of really dire problems and to just think that like going on the path that we're on, we're just going to solve these problems. I, I don't think that that's the case. I think we, you know, and so that's what he calls communism. And in a very interesting interview with a, a libertarian, who's a, a very smart, um, very well-read man. Uh, his name, he runs a blog called uh, Marginal Revolution, whose work I, I read because I like to see, you know, what, what uh, someone who's obviously like very articulate, smart economist, Tyler Cohen is his name. Uh, you know, he interviewed Slavoj Zizek and he's like, you know, why, why identify with communism? You know, like, why do you say like you are a communist? And, 
anyways, I just think that he's, you know, yeah, what he's calling communism is basically anything that's not the path that we're on. And maybe that's a mistake in terms of marketing and uh, maybe that's a mistake in terms of just especially in the United States where that word is so taboo. But I, I do think we need to, we're facing a lot of very serious dire problems that I don't think market the market and uh, the global capitalist order as currently um, as currently situated is going is capable of dealing with the types of problems that we're facing well thanks man thanks for the conversation good conversation yeah now let's get some ice cream dq something different get some food <laughs>